0: Welcome to our series, Alumni Conversations, where we sit down with alumni from our executive education programs to hear how their experience has had an impact. Today, Arvind Shadrachagran, Associate Dean and Academic Director for the Executive MBA and Master of Business Operational Excellence Programs, sits down with Dr. Susan Moffat-Bruce. Susan currently serves as Chief Executive Officer at Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and is a practicing thoracic surgeon. Prior to her role in Canada, she served the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in many roles, including Executive Director and Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer. While at Ohio State, she opted to further her education and received her Master of Business Operational Excellence, as well as her Executive MBA. This conversation was recorded during a live event and includes a few questions from participating audience members.
1: I am thrilled to actually introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Moffat bruce Uh, And I'm going to have her talk more about her journey and some of the lessons. Uh, All I can say is, like, uh, there are so much valuable lessons that everyone can learn from her journey. And so uh, it's, it's my pleasure to actually talk to Susan about some of the things that she has learned so far. So welcome, Susan.
2: Great. Thanks very much, AC, and thank you to everyone, Anna, Amber, for for inviting me today. Um, Absolute pleasure. I am, um, obviously, this is a virtual world, and I'm uh, actually right now in Ottawa, Canada. Um, That is in the um, middle of Canada, uh, in Ontario, and Ottawa is the capital of Canada, much like Washington, D.C., um, it, is, it has not snowed here yet. Um, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's already a good day, um, but, but the temperatures are dipping quite a bit. so it, it will soon, the snow will fly soon enough.
1: Great. So Susan, for our uh, audience out here who may not know you uh, enough, can you give uh, them an, uh, an overview of like where you are? where you've been in the past, and what, what have you done so far in terms of not just practicing medicine, but also changing the way things have uh, ha- been ha- happening at Ohio State and beyond.
2: Well, thanks very much, AC, and, and again, just a pleasure to be here. Um, so, um, I don't know where to start except to say, OH, IO. I-O. I'm a Buckeye. Um, I'm a transplanted Buckeye because now I'm in Ottawa. But um, I have um, been really fortunate. Um, I'm a trained thoracic surgeon. I've been able to do some uh, graduate studies. I did a PhD in Cambridge. I did a fellowship at Stanford. Um, I was able to practice at OSU for um, 14 years. Um, And along the way, I was very fortunate to meet my husband and have two uh, children, two girls, uh, Emily and Sarah, who keep me really grounded. So I've had a great opportunity um, to just continuously engage and um, change my leadership trajectory. I think probably the most pivotal moment um, in my career was when I was offered the Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer role, the inaugural role, at the Wexner Medical Center. Um, And that really was a time when the leaders of the organization um, identified that there was a need to have um, dedicated resources to truly um, embracing and measuring outcomes relative to quality and patient safety. Um, And I was, um, uh, to to have been chosen as the inaugural uh, CQO really was one of the greatest highlights of my career. Um, So that was um, almost 10 years ago. Um, And I think from there, I've learned um, such a a huge amount. And through that journey, obviously, I needed to acquire some new skills so that I might be able to be um, thoughtful and deliberate in what I was responsible for.
1: That is great. So today's topic, Susan, is on uh, um, expanding the toolbox for women in business. So uh, as you reflect on your journey from a physician, a thoracic surgeon, to uh, a chief quality and patient safety officer at Wexner, to where you are right now as a CEO of the Royal College of Surgeons and Physicians in Canada, what were some tools or principles that helped you in this journey?
2: Um, So that's a really good question, AC. And when I reflect on it, and maybe it's because we're amid this pandemic, the most Prominent thought I have is that change is constant and you have to be able to adapt to it. So, adaptability and flexibility has been that leadership trait that I think has allowed me not only to perhaps perform well in the um, roles I had, but also to look for new opportunities and continuously um, evolve my own skill set and my own responsibilities. Just to put into perspective, before I left um, OSU, I miss everybody at at OSU, so it's really great to talk to everyone today. Um, I was uh, able to be the executive director for the flagship hospital, the University Hospital, mm-hmm. and actually helped to design the new hospital, which was mm-hmm. again a great opportunity for me. And then I pivoted to this role, which is the CEO of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. So responsible for about fifty thousand specialists across Canada. Um, the training, the accreditation, um, the continuous competency. So I had to change my skill set, change my um, understanding of what a metric of success was, and then also bring teams along uh, through these changes so that we enable the work and enable the organization as well. So accepting change and being flexible are probably the keys um, that are needed in in leadership journeys.
1: And, and and I'm sure a lot of our audience would, would want to ask you this question. We are in this COVID world where uh, office becomes work, work becomes office. Uh, there's a very invisible line between, as you mentioned, you have two beautiful daughters who are going to school right now. So how are you juggling? And now you're a CEO of a big uh, associate, Royal College of Surgeons. How are you able to do all of those things yet? Again, as you said, family is absolutely important you're able to manage and focus on that what are some practices that you do as you think about today's world to manage and balance all these things
2: really good question again and i think covid 19 has put changes in our world all of our worlds that will probably in some form stay i will be perfectly honest i don't think i pivoted or changed very well initially when COVID and all the changes kind of um, came to fruition. Um, My first couple of days, I was balancing a laptop on my knees in a chair in the living room. And then after about a week, I thought, hmm, this is getting to be more permanent. So then my husband, Nigel, had to set up a table in the front room because my girls had already accepted the change. So they'd taken over all the other, uh, you know, the den and the bedrooms and such. So um, I had to get a, you know, some sort of office set up. And then about three weeks in, I thought, wow, this is really, you know, the the new normal. Mm-hmm. And so I had to set up my standing desk, which became, you know, a box of books and, mm-hmm. uh, and, clo- and doors that could be closed so that not everybody wanted to hear. You know, the girls didn't mm-hmm. want to hear what I was working on. And likewise, I didn't want to hear what they were working on. So um, I-, I think that it was really important to then at five o'clock or six o'clock, whatever time my mm-hmm. last Zoom meeting was, to break away and leave it as if it was my office mm, um, yeah. and I think that's hard right in this new virtual world because we're we're so connected but yeah I, I think setting parameters mm-hmm. was really really important now sadly I think I've started to get back into my old practices of starting work at six thirty or 7 in the morning whereas before I used to start at the beginning of the school day because the girls were starting school virtually so I need sure. to be more disciplined as I go forward, but I think setting barriers, boundaries, and barriers mm-hmm. similar to as if you were in your office. And mm-hmm. now today I am in my office, um, but when I'm at home, thinking about it still as an office space and having that discipline to bring it um, into a, a manageable time frame.
1: Okay, that's very helpful. Again, those those are very hard to do. By the way, right? Even I struggle. Uh, one lesson I have. One lesson I have is it's very hard. You try to do this, but then there's that call you want to take and resolve it. for the Or Saturdays the next or yes.
2: maybe a call on Sunday night. You yeah, know, if you didn't do it before, it. you shouldn't start doing it now.
1: Yeah, it's good, good advice, Susan. So as a leader, Susan, what were some barriers you faced? Again, as a woman and a leader, uh, in, I mean, you've, you've led, led thousands of uh, people all over, uh, like in, not just in the U.S., but in Canada now. What are some barriers you face as a woman particularly, and how do you overcome them?
2: Um, so I always think of the barriers as opportunities in many instances to think about how to do things differently or better. I think if, um, if I were to think about all the barriers, it may be somewhat defeating. Um, I do think though, one of the barriers I had personally was that maybe as a, as a surgeon, as an, a fairly impatient person, my timeline and others' um, timelines are a little bit different. And I think that sometimes it can be perceived as a barrier if you're not aligned with expectations or timelines. Hmm. Um, and that's something you really need to kind of in, figure out internally well, what, what's acceptable to you to get the work done. And then externally, how can you influence so that timelines and expectations are more aligned? Um, I can't say for inst- you know for certain that I had true barriers mm-hmm. other than to say that every time that I wasn't quite content or wasn't mm-hmm. quite um, aligned, it became an opportunity and maybe a challenge uh, to do better personally mm-hmm. or influence the system within which I worked.
1: Okay. And, and uh, again, in terms of influencing things, things, Susan, again, that's again an art and a science, right? What, was, what are some practices that you would recommend? Because being a woman and still want to influence some personalities who, again, uh, might oppose those changes. How do you influence them? What are some traits that you've taken that can help?
2: Yeah, I think um, when you want to influence and particularly influence change, and sometimes at a time when change may not be on people's radar or it may not be a priority for them, you, you first have to have your own internal set of values mm-hmm. um, and be understanding of those and, and adhere to them. So for me, inclusivity, um, flexibility, um, empathy are, are values. I th- you then have to understand. I think what might be the barriers for others to change, and again, figure out what's what is it that's hindering them. What is it that you can help with or facilitate so that you can bring people with you as compared to do things for people. Hmm. I-, I also think that um, you have to truly be engaged, and I think one of my oppor- one of the advantages of what I did at OSU is that I was taking care of patients, I was working with people, patients, working with teams that I truly believed in and I was part of the team. Hmm. So a very horizontal type of engagement and leadership I think is essential to make change and to bring people along to find solutions.
1: Interesting. Be more flat in terms of your leadership yes. skills. Yeah,
2: cool. hierarchy I think can get us caught many times. I think being horizontal, inclusive, mm-hmm. um, unity of 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 direction, understanding how to enable teams and trust in them, mm-hmm. um, but have measurables so that you can you know measure the performance and and the outcome that you're responsible for.
1: Okay. And I know, like Susan, uh, beyond being a thoracic surgeon. You have a PhD okay? yes. and then you have, uh, I believe, like I know this, uh, you have a master's of operational excellence degree and then you have an executive MBA degree. I mean, th- can you tell us more about like, why did you pursue these three different pr- degrees in the first <laughs> place after accomplishing yourself as a, a, a thoracic surgeon doing all the residency and fellowship, what what ma- went on in your head? And that, what did you learn? I mean, each one gave you different uh, skill sets, right? Yes. What, did, what were you learning across all three different degrees?
2: Well, I think it's fair to say, AC, I am a lifelong learner, um, and I do truly enjoy learning new things, and every year I give myself a new challenge, and sometimes those challenges are bigger than others. Um, The PhD gave me scientific discipline, and it was really a great time to have to really depend on my own abilities to um, find a problem, find the solution, and and make it um such that it was reasonable for the university to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, but relative to the master's courses that I've taken at um at OSU at Fisher, so in 2010 when I became the inaugural chief quality officer, um, I was thrilled, right? And and if anybody knows me, they know that I always say yes. Right? <laughs> and and oftentimes I say yes and then I'm like, okay, now what am I going to do about it? Um, and and really, at that time, because I had inherited a huge responsibility, I didn't think I had the skills. Mm. Now, I might have had some of the traits and some of the characteristics that would enable the skills, but I had to learn them. Mm. And that's when the Masters of Business and Operational Excellence really came in. Mm. And I can remember Peter Ward coming over to talk with Steve Gabby and myself, who was my CEO at the time, and... and um, I, you know, Pete Geyer. He was the COO. You know, mm-hmm. sat me down, handed me Atul Gawande's checklist book. Yes. And, uh, and then I looked at Peter Ward and I'm like, well, and now you got to teach me something. And, um, and so I was really fortunate to be able to do the Masters of Business of Operational Excellence at the time because it gave me the tools. And I would say almost instantly after the first session and I got my coach, Helen Zach, who's still a good friend mm-hmm. um, and coach to me, um, I was given skills that I was able to use you know, how do you do a program, um, the voice of the customer? How do you figure out how to run a project? Mm-hmm. Um, what is a, a FEMA? You know, and, and within that year, I was really able to embrace and understand skills that made my, me successful in what I was responsible for, but also my team. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, it, I mean, it was difficult to start a new job and do a master's at the same time, but I would say that the faculty made it incredibly meaningful. And uh, obviously, you know, what, uh, 10 years later, we're Mm -hmm. still friends and and colleagues. So that was really a great experience. And then later on in my journey, when I was looking to get to the more strategic level, more Mm -hmm. influence, larger scale uh, responsibility is when the executive MBA uh, came in play. And again, that was um, a great experience. Mm -hmm. I think both of them gave me new and different perspectives, new and different skills. Um, and I would, and I would, if I had to do it again, I'd do both of them in that order, Great. because okay. it enabled me as a leader.
1: Okay. So each, each one of your, again, uh, what I would call is uh, degrees and, and and sciences gave you some fundamentals that allow you to like actually go and, and elevate yourself in your organization. So, so along those lines, one one question I'm sure a lot of us would ask you is, uh, what what would be some advice for the next generation leaders like you?
2: Women leaders. Thank you. Yeah. So I think um, I think everybody has the potential to be a leader, and I think in every in, in almost every instance we are a leader to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the environment we work within. So it's it's within all of us. There's no doubt about that. I would truly appreciate um, going forward. If again, if I had to start um, a new job, a new role you need to have a team or a support system in place mm. so for instance when i think about my you know people often ask do you have mentors mm. and every time i started a new project or i had a new responsibility i had to engage teams that would help support me mm. now some of those people have become my mentors and sometimes they are not traditional mentors or support systems but they are fundamental to what you do so for instance, let me give you an example. So Chris Ellison was my chair of surgery. Mm-hmm. He is the, the person that said when I had the CQO offer, this is a good thing to do. You know, you, you, I know you're not gonna be as busy as a clinician. You may not use you know, your science background, but you'll use different skills and you'll influence more. Mm-hmm. So that, that support system is really important. Um, when I started as the CQO a little bit later on and needed to understand more about staffing and understand HR issues, Tina Latimer mm. was in f- absolutely fundamental. She, was, she has a nursing background. She has a business background and she kept me grounded in all things. I got a big, big grant uh, a couple of years ago. It's a five-year AHRQ grant. Alice Gahan helped me get through that and figure out how I would stay on track. So these became my supports, my mentors, and eventually my friends. And you need that support system to truly stay um, level and not go a little bit crazy in some of your um, endeavors.
1: Sure, so support system would be one, Susan, right? Well, what what are other things that they should prepare themselves to get ready? Because again, as we think about it, it's it's, it's gonna be a very different world. Uh, The COVID has changed a lot, right? So, yep. as people as as people are graduating from whatever they are and they want to rise up in their organizations, what are some skill set and some things that they should be aware of?
2: I think that um, you have to have the skills and have the understanding of the content that you want. So, you may need to do additional, um, le- um, you know, teachings or courses so that you you're ready. I think always being confident, and mm-hmm. I think having some confidence um, that you can do it. Um, maybe even before you're ready um, is good. And I think truly understanding and always reflecting on what went well and what didn't go well, but being humble enough. So humility goes a long way and being humble enough to always have self-reflection on how best uh, to go forward.
1: So the the other thing that I wanna ask you, Susan, especially uh, reflecting on your leadership, Uh, experience, right? So we can all claim that there is lesser uh, gender equality right now, but we all know that there is still some inequality in in workplace with respect to gender. What can we do to actually like manage that, mitigate that? Because we know that uh, it's not the same. And it's, it's presenting. I mean, as, a, as a, a male faculty, I can only say, empathize what are the, like, uh, in terms of promotion and tenure, yeah. I know how hard it is for female faculty to come up. It's not the same. I know that. So what are some things that we can do as leaders to actually, like, promote more generally uh, inclusiveness in, in workplace environment?
2: Yeah, so I think that this is an important um, time in our um, in, in, in society right now because I think equity, diversity, and inclusion is so important and something that we need to do better as a society. Mm-hmm. Relative to gender, I think truly listening, listening to learn, mm-hmm. and when you learn engaging um, not only women but others that influence the environment in which they may be working in and being active, being active participants. So for instance, search committees, search committees that are looking for, say, the new chair or the new division head should take implicit bias training, understand their own internal thoughts before they are part of that. Actively seeking women, um, questioning and looking to see whether or not they have the Mm -hmm. ability Mm -hmm. to, to take on the skills that are needed. And, and women sometimes underestimate their abilities, and so really being mindful of that. A- again, it takes active listening and active engagement to ensure that we have equity uh, in all of our processes. This is a really um, important, i like to say important time, and I think we can all do better, not only in gender, though, AC. I think it's a- across the board, sure. however we are th- thinking of this, we have to lean in on this and truly embrace
1: this. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, I agree with you. It's not just gender and everything, right? One of the things that we see is people just uh, bring in diversity for the sake of diversity.
2: Yes, But But
1: but that's not the the be all. The the, the real thing is diversity is so powerful, especially if you really work towards it, you can get Mm -hmm. the strengths out of it, right? So so you're absolutely right. It's not just the gender.
2: Absolutely. And I think one of the things I realize and it makes me think about the gender um, issues is don't assume that, you know, you know, for instance, I can imagine, um, well, you know, that that woman may not want the job because she has to pick up her children after school. Don't assume that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never picked up my children from school because uh, a, have never been invited to. But B, um, (laughs) that's that's not my role. My my husband is taking care of my children, our children for 16 Mm -hmm. years. And he does a really good job at it, probably better than I ever did. So don't assume a role or a responsibility.
1: That's right. So uh, along those lines, Susan, in terms of the workplace itself, right? As you have taken over this this huge role uh, in Canada, right? Uh, just talk us through about like, what, what were some differences? Now you were an executive director for a hospital. Mm-hmm. Now you're managing over 50,000 physicians. And then again, mm-hmm. uh, I would call like peers to you, right? And so what are some, I mean, how are you managing? This This is a big, big job for you. And I'm not saying that the executive director is a small job, but the leap was so big, especially during COVID. Yes, Uh, All this happened during COVID. So walk us through that change that you had to take in order to manage this huge uh, uh, (laughs) opportunity in front of you.
2: So, um, you know, the last eight months, have brought forward more change in my life personally and professionally than ever in my life, you know, moving countries, getting kids into new schools, um, changing, uh, selling a house, buying another house, coming across (laughs) borders. So I, I have really tried to understand and embrace change. It's not always easy. The other thing that I've realized that when you take on more responsibility, especially responsibility in which, like I can't go down the hall and see the physicians that are in British Columbia. You have to stay connected and find new ways of connecting with people. And then COVID hit. So even Mm. more diverse ways of connecting with people. So, So that's been one lesson. The second has really been understanding how to enable and trust those that work with me. So you have to understand what their responsibilities are, you have to understand what their skill set is, and then what their strengths are. Mm. Um, and then trust that they, in them because they have the, the ability. And that's, you know, so I always use the saying, you know, I like to, I'm a micro-knower, I don't want to be a micromanager. So I like to know things, but I'm not there to manage all the, um, all the small things that they may be more suitable to manage. And then thirdly is truly being humble in understanding what I don't know and asking for help when I need it. Um, Reaching out to my my board has been incredibly, I report to a board, they've been incredibly engaged. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning, I thought they would never come together at a moment's notice to talk about a significant issue. But when asked, they were grateful for the opportunity. So reaching out and really being humble in um, what your abilities are and where you need help. We've got it, we we have to embrace that type
1: of a mindset. That is great, Susan. I know we have lots of questions coming uh, from the audience, but before that, I wanna ask one more question. And this is based on a previous conversation that I had with you, where you mentioned something like mentors need not just be somebody that's uh, 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 over you. Mentors can also be somebody that is actually working for you, right, Mm -hmm. everyone. Can you tell us more because that was a very powerful statement that you uh, actually reflected on that because you can learn from everybody. Can you just walk us through uh, that experience in life because that is another valuable experience uh, lesson for all of us?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's really important to have many different mentors, and you will do throughout the journey that you, you're traveling. So I have mentors from you know my undergraduate, from my professional uh, work, from my my personal life. And I think you have to have many different type of mentors to to the point I I made a little bit earlier, the mentors um, can be from any uh, discipline, from any walk of life. And um, for me, I've even had mentors that are in many different countries um, and, and connectivity is really important. And now there's a difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And I think you, 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 need, you need to not confuse the two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sponsors may be more transactional. They support you at a, small, at a period in your life. And, and then, you know, they're there, but they may not always have a presence. Whereas mentors, they always have a presence. And it may be a quick text or it may be a long conversation. But you know that they're always there and they're kind of taking the journey with you. But they may have started at different points in that journey. But, you know, to this day, I would say some of my, my best mentors are some of the staff that worked with me, um, some of my medical students even, um, really, really thoughtful mentors. And uh, then obviously some of those people that were in authority over me became mentors as well
1: that is great susan i just want to like close this and i, I want to open this for our audience but one thing that i whenever i listen to you and leaders like you uh, that have talked to me about how, what becomes um, what makes a good leader i i find that uh, skill sets there are five skill sets that i i think as a takeaway for me so i'm just going to tell them for our audience benefits so one is the humility again the ability for leaders uh, male or female to be humble enough to actually admit when they don't know the answer, to go and see and get the answer. And I see that a lot in you, Susan. I think that's a very powerful uh, uh, trait. The other one would be curiosity, the mm-hmm. whole aspect of uh, how do I know it's happening and when, when should I go and talk to someone? Uh, you mentioned perseverance. That's a third characteristic I would say is that it's very important to be perseverance in terms of like taking feedback and comments, as you mentioned, from everyone when it's important to do. Uh, Self-discipline, that will be the fourth one, I would say, because active listening skills. If you really want to, like you said, if I really want to have an equality in my workplace and all, I've got to listen more. So the whole idea of self-discipline is poor. And the last one I would say, which I think is the most powerful one that I've learned from you and others, is this idea of daily reflection. Mm-hmm. So every day reflecting on as you mentioned, how can I improve? How can I do something better tomorrow? And that's what drives you to get all your degrees. I don't know how many more you want to get uh, and probably you are getting right. So that the whole idea of again, learning, learning, learning that number stops. So those five traits that you have are very important for anybody uh, to actually rise in their organization. So that's fantastic. Thank you. So Anna, I want to take this opportunity to turn it over to you. I'm sure there are lots of questions from the audience for Susan. Yeah,
0: we've had quite a few come through. I'm going to start with the the latest one because we were just talking about it. Um, How do you ask someone to be your mentor? What if you're already at the age where you should be the mentor?
2: Well, that that is a really good question. Um, And um, it is sometimes it can be a difficult conversation, but I think if you enter into the conversation with humility and asking for help, I don't think there's a dif- an age differential in, um, in, in mentorship. Um, and as I said, I mean, I have, I have medical students who mentor me um, and I have residents who mentor me. And I also have those that are senior advisors here or in the college that are my mentors. So age need, or, or where you are in life, It's really around what skills or what um, perceptions can be brought to that relationship and just entering into the conversation with humility and asking for assistance or advice. People are very, very open to that and uh, it usually starts a great conversation and oftentimes a great friendship.
0: Okay. How can you make time to work, especially when jobs are demanding and beyond a nine to five and work on a degree?
2: a lot of good friends no uh, it's it's about having a good team i mean if you think when i think about it and first of all i don't think about it too much I, i try to think of what's the end goal and how am i going to get there but i have been fortunate that i've always had a great support system and sometimes that's been my own family sometimes that's been friends sometimes it's work colleagues and then setting limits that you're comfortable with now Um, Some would say that I never stop at 5 p.m. Probably true. However, I'm comfortable stopping at 9 p.m. because I feel fulfilled in that. That's my limit. That's what I'm comfortable with and my family is comfortable with. Um, But, yeah, I think it's – and there's no – this work-life balance, I don't think that exists. I think it's work-life integration and how do you integrate it so that you and your family are, can truly work um work you know be happy in that it's not easy there's no, there's no perfect equation and sometimes the math absolutely does not work don't tell J dial that because that would be a problem but um mm-hmm. i do think that um you, you have to work at it and, and find balance with the support systems
0: the next question is um, on the same kind of path as that one. I know Nigel has come up a few times in this conversation and his support was brought up by many people at your Wexner Medical Center send off. What advice would, uh, would you have for all of us about enlisting our partners or family in our success? How do you approach frank conversations about uh, what you need at home in order to push forward in your career? And how do you ensure long term that you and your partner get to balance your professional aspirations?
2: Wow. That was a, that's a really great question. So Nigel's my husband. Um, he has been so for 21 years. Um, actually, uh, when I was at, doing my PhD in Cambridge, we were married in Cambridge. My mom said I went for a PhD and I ended up with PhD and a husband. So that was uh, mm-hmm. tricky. Um, but, you know, we had to make a decision almost 16 years ago that Nigel would give up his career and take care of the kids full time. And I would continue on with my career. That was a personal decision that we made um, and at the time I can it wasn't um, as acceptable then as it may be now um, and there was a couple of things that he would not so he's like absolutely and he does a great job taking care of the girls but there were two things that he couldn't do one was he wouldn't drive a minivan and second was he wouldn't use one of those snuggies so as long as as we didn't I didn't impose that then he was happy taking care of the, the girls and and as I say to this day he, he, he does a great job. But it has, you have to have active conversations. You have to truly be willing to understand that this is a personal choice and that not everybody will agree with it or understand it. Um, it, it um, but it does take active conversation. And I would say that through the years, I've probably not been as good um, keeping Nigel up to date with my own plans. Um, and I could have done much, much better over the years. However, we had a common goal, and that is to keep our girls well and to be, you know, a happy family. Um, But it takes work.
0: What are some small, quick, or easy ways we can advance our skill set without committing to a master's program? Books we can read, websites we can visit, places to find mentors, etc.
2: Yeah, so I think um, relative to the mentors, I think just look around you. People that you've gone to to get a little bit of advice or people that you really kind of thought, wow, the way they answered that question was really good. Um, so you don't need to look far for mentors. I think, relative to additional skills, there's so many online um, opportunities now. Um, I think there's lots of webinars, uh, LinkedIn learning, there's lots of, um, and, and they needn't be long. I find them more, like yesterday, I, I listened to a um, a webinar that was 30 minutes. Well, in 30 minutes, I had such a deeper understanding in um, a topic that I was interested in, and it, but I had to be, you know, kind of focused for that 30 minutes. So I do think now with the with everything being so virtual, there's so many online offerings that you just have to kind of have a discipline to put them in your calendar and then engage in them. But no, you're right, we don't have to do a formal degree in every instance to gain new skills, but you have to be disciplined to put it in your calendar, do it, and focus on it during that time.
0: In other leadership seminars, speakers have emphasized that women leaders need to have executive presence. How would you define executive presence and what are some ways you would recommend women women develop it?
2: That's a very, very good question.
0: you know, I think it's that's, there's an internal and
2: there's an external presence. I mean, I think internally you have to be prepared for the meeting. I think you have to be prepared for being in the room um, mentally. And then I think externally, um, I think it's more about, you know, being, you know, being at the table. So don't take the back road. Um, being, you know, mindful and respectful of others' conversation. But say, you know, when we have a moment, I have a, an opinion or I have something I want to say. I think be listening, but also then answering when it's appropriate. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a learned skill, but I think it takes internal preparedness and, and external confidence um, to have that presence.
0: this one's a little long your career trajectory has been inspirational thank you for your insights in medicine in particular it can be incredibly difficult as a woman to move into leadership roles this can be irrespective of individual abilities and or achievements it would seem as though sponsors are very important can you tell us about a situation related to your role in medicine or healthcare leadership where you didn't have a sponsor but were still able to successfully advance What are your strategies to overcome the micro and macro aggressions that can occur in medicine and how to navigate when there might not be a sponsor you can identify?
2: Very good question Um, in depth. I'm trying to make sure that I I get to all of it. Um, So let's just go, I just want to go back to the micro and macro aggressions because that's a term that I think has become more and more important. um, And maybe we need to not shy away from. Um, and I don't think myself, I understood, I understood the macroaggressions and, and I've managed those, it, although not many in my life. The microaggressions are the ones that you sometimes either try to dismiss or uh, ignore. And I think that facing those head on with a curiosity, with professionalism, and with some humility can usually take that down. Um, and, and you responsive to it, and you feel better for it afterwards. So I think not shying away from microaggressions is really important and something that we may not always have done as uh, new leaders or as women in leadership positions. So I would challenge us all to do that. Look for them first of all, identify them and then address them. It's not always easy, but you will, you will benefit and you will feel better having done it. Um, relative to sponsorship, that's a very active process, and sometimes you just have to blatantly ask for the help. Um, you know, I can remember I wanted to do a um, a course, and the course was um, it, it was fairly costly, and it took time away from my responsibilities. And I knew about it, and one year went by, and I didn't get nominated for. It. Then another year went by. And, uh, I'm like, hmm, I really want to do this. Well, so finally, I'm like, I make an appointment with. You know, the person who is responsible for nominating, and I'm like, I really want to do this. And they're like, really? <laughs> so sometimes you just need to, you know, address it and, and ask for it. And, and do it politely, do it professionally, but just say, I, I this is what I want to do. Could you please do it? And if you can't, could you kindly suggest someone that would recommend me or sponsor me for that? So take you know, take the responsibility and, and, and be bold, but professional.
0: Great. All right, we have one last question, and then if you have any closing remarks, um, let's see. How did you de- How did you decide which PhD program to pursue after you completed your MD, MB,OE, and EMBA?
2: Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and sometimes I wonder how I ended up where I did. So I did my PhD in the middle of my general surgery residency, and no other resident had ever done that. And in that in um, I had to take the guidance of my, one of my mentors and I had a choice between three different places. I hadn't been to any of them. And so I really had to depend on those that I trusted in to help me choose a place where I would be, um, you know, where it would be thoughtful for me for my, what type of research I wanted to do. But I had, I had to really kind of take a leap of faith, um, hadn't been there and, Needless to say, I didn't hadn't even met my supervisor when I showed up, um, and so I I had to trust. And um, luckily, because it I I really wanted it to work out, it worked out. And uh, but I had to put some effort into it, um, and it wasn't always easy. But it 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 it
0: was pivotal in my life. All right, we did have one more question come through. With all your incredible accomplishments, do you have any regrets? <laughs>
2: you know i don't know that i have any major regrets i would definitely go into medicine again i would definitely do my phd again i do my masters and i am so grateful for every opportunity that i have had because i've had so many opportunities and so many people have opened doors um maybe i would have liked to have um, stayed um, in touch with more people for longer and, and sometimes I regret losing contact with some good people that influenced my life um, and so that's probably something to to improve on going forward but true regrets no do I miss people do I miss experiences do I miss certain events absolutely and those are great memories for me
0: okay. well, those are all our questions today um, so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have really enjoyed the last you know, 45 minutes with you. Um, and we know your schedule is very busy. So thank you for taking the time to speak with all of us today.
2: My absolute pleasure. Um, I even have my world's largest Buckeye here on my desk. So I will, I'll always be indebted to OSU. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susan.
0: For more information on our executive education offerings, please visit fisher.osu.edu.